0: As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible and open it up to Luke chapter 9, we're in verses 18 through 22 today. You know, in life, there are some people that are just larger than life to the degree that whenever you say their name, they just automatically generate an opinion. For example, in the sports world, if I say Tom Brady or Tony Romo, you automatically have an opinion of these guys. In the political world, if I say Donald Trump, or if I say Barack Obama, you automatically have an opinion that forms in your mind. In the musical world, if I say Elvis Presley, you already have an opinion of what you think about him. Or if I say Lash and the Paul Bears, you you automatically have an idea of what you think about their music. Well, whenever you say Jesus Christ... People automatically have an opinion about who Jesus is. In fact, if you really want to get people squirming and you're in a non church setting, just quote something and give credit to Jesus. Quote something that he said and and give him credit. And you'll see people automatically just get a little bit squirmy because of the fact he makes people a little uncomfortable. If you look at history, Jesus is easily the most significant figure who has ever lived. You think about it, he lived over 2,000 years ago. He never sat on a throne. He never commanded an army. He never scored a goal. He never wrote a song or performed in any kind of way, and yet his life is so significant that he divides time in half. We understand time as before Christ and after Christ. Whenever you think about various areas of society, the great medical movements that have brought relief to people all over the world who were suffering from disease inspired by Christ. You think about all the different hospitals that were started. You, you go to these different hospitals. You have Methodist Hospital and Presby Hospital and, and the Baylor Hospitals. The Baylor Hospitals actually started out of the Baptist ranks. And so all these different medical movements that were inspired by Jesus Christ, uh, the education world. You, you may not realize this, but most of the Ivy League schools were originally started to teach people divinity, to teach people about the things of the Lord. And so Jesus has inspired much of the great education movements around the world. If you think about some of the great works of art, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, Raphael and others, their their art was inspired by Jesus. You think about the area of law. Whenever you begin looking at human rights, whenever you start thinking about a free society, even whenever you think about women's rights and this whole idea of democracy, much of it has its roots in the teaching of Jesus. Whenever you think about the social order and you think about marriage and the way in which children are to be raised, you think about the basic concept of family and basic ideas that uh, whenever a man and woman uh, enter into marriage that they leave and they cleave and they form a new family unit that is all teaching that was inspired by Jesus whenever you think about Ethics and much of the way in which we treat each other, not just in the church, but within the community and the values of honesty and integrity that we have within society. This has roots in the inspiration of Jesus. Whenever you think about philosophy, literature, uh, scientific exploration, discovery, all of this has roots that go back to the teaching and the inspiration of Jesus. Jesus Christ is easily, there's nobody even close, Jesus Christ is easily the most influential person to ever live. No honest assessment. And because his life is so impactful, I encourage that anyone, everyone, needs to do an honest assessment of who you believe Jesus to be. But no honest assessment of Jesus could conclude otherwise that he is by far the most influential person to have ever lived. But now this is where it gets difficult. Because yes, Jesus changes society. But Jesus changes society by changing the individual. You see, Jesus' impact on society is undeniable. But at the heart of Jesus' message was a message of salvation. Within it, one finds the meaning to the three great mysteries of life, faith, hope, and love. Now, people talk about faith, hope, and love in secular venues all the time. They describe them in different ways. But ultimately, for you to truly understand what faith is, what it means to hope in something beyond just wishful thinking, What it means to truly have a love that goes beyond what can this person bring to my life and instead says, how can I serve this other person? For you to truly have faith, hope, and love come alive, it requires that Jesus come alive within your heart. There are a lot of great religious teachers that have come onto the scene. So how is Jesus different? How does Jesus differ from Muhammad or Joseph Smith or other religious teachers that have come onto the scene. Jesus didn't just call you to follow a set of teachings. He didn't say, okay, here are my thoughts, I'm going to write them down, now you go behave better. Jesus called us to trust in Him to believe in Him as Savior and Lord. And in fact, He taught that until you first believe in Him as Savior and Lord, you will not have the power or the ability to live out His teachings. And so the biggest problem that a lot of people have with Jesus is Jesus. Because when you actually read what Jesus said, He narrows your options about what you can believe about Him into something that is very, very tight For example, Jesus said in John chapter 3 and verse 36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Now we read that and we applaud that. Yeah, we all want eternal life. So Jesus says the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. He goes on. He says, instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So Jesus, in His own teaching, He he starts narrowing your options about what you can do with Him. He says, the one who believes in the Son, that guy has, or that person has life. But the one who doesn't believe in the Son, that person remains under the wrath of God. In John chapter 14, and verse 6, Jesus said these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Me. Jesus basically said, I'm it. I'm not a way to God. I'm not one version of the truth. I'm not just an opinion. Jesus says, I'm it. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. If you want to be alive spiritually, if you want to know God, Jesus says, you must come through me. Again, Jesus' own words really begin narrowing the options about what you can believe about him because he says, I am your only path to God. This is what we call the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He taught this over and over and over again. Some people are repelled by it because they say, well, shouldn't there be multiple paths to God? But if you really stop and think about it, if God can be known, wouldn't you want to know how He can be known? And so Jesus erases all the ambiguity and says, if you want to know God, if you want to have a relationship with God, I am your path. And it is this call to believe, this call to trust in Jesus alone, believing that he is the only way to God that makes Jesus, now stick with me, makes Jesus not just the most influential person that has ever lived, but also makes Jesus the most polarizing person that has ever lived. It is what causes people to have an immediate reaction whenever you mention the name of Jesus. So we arrive today at Luke chapter 9, and at this point, Jesus is at the height of his popularity. And he's been doing a lot of things to really please the crowds, and because of that, he has reached over a million followers on Twitter, and everywhere he goes, there are great crowds of people around him, wanting to be close to Him. Now you'll remember earlier in the story, He calmed the storm, and He showed that He had power over nature. You remember whenever He freed the man that was in the grip of demonic power, literally this man was living His life under the control of a legion of demons, and Jesus freed him from the grip of evil, showing that Jesus had power over evil. We saw Jesus heal the sick, time and time and time again, showing that Jesus has power over disease. We saw Jesus come in and raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, showing that Jesus has power over death. And we've seen the greatest miracle of all, that Jesus would tell the hurting lost person, your sins are forgiven, showing that Jesus has power over the great depravity of humankind. Power over our hopelessness. And through all of this, there have been 12 guys. 12 guys, the 12 disciples that have had front row seats. They've been watching Jesus do all these things. And now Jesus brings them to their point. What is it that you believe about Jesus? Look at verse 18 of Luke chapter 9. The Bible says, while he was praying in private, And his disciples were with him. Now let's pause right there because we see Jesus in a prayer meeting. We see him and the 12 disciples coming together in group prayer. I know that sometimes prayer makes people a little bit uncomfortable. But I want you to realize that Jesus and his disciples did it together often. They would pray together. They would encourage one another in prayer. And this part of the sermon is brought to you by first Wednesday prayer service, which will be this Wednesday night at 645, a time where we as a church come together in prayer. And if you're able to join us for that, we would love to have you this Wednesday night at 645. And while I'm doing commercials, uh, I want to thank those that built me this new stand here. Uh, Yes, uh, uh, Kevin Psalm and Chad Hermas and Carl Moore, put this together, and so I thank them for that. They even put it at my height so that it's not like tiny height way up here, you know. Okay, so that was, okay, come back to your regularly scheduled programming, all right? So if you're asleep, wake up. So Jesus and the disciples are in a prayer meeting, and He asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others that one of the ancient prophets has come back. So all three responses were what we call apocalyptic in nature. You remember John the Baptist said, repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he began to disappear from society when he was arrested, and then he was beheaded. And so some people began to think that Jesus was the fulfillment of John the Baptist's message and that John the Baptist had come back alive in Jesus. Others thought Elijah. You remember, Elijah was taken up, and so he did not die, and so they thought Jesus was Elijah that was returning. And then others said, no, 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 but he is one of the prophets. But all of the answers had the same thing in common. They were all thinking that Jesus had a kind of an end-of-the-world type message, that Jesus' message was geared towards the fact that the day of the Lord was coming, and you need to listen to me. And so Jesus asked them this question, who do people, who do the crowd say that I am? So I asked this question, who do the crowd say that Jesus is? Within society, who do people say that Jesus is? Well, sometimes people give a mystical answer. In the New Testament era, there was a group of people called the Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. The Gnostics comes from a Greek word, gnosis, which means knowledge. And so what the Gnostics thought was that Jesus was a superior human being who got more in touch with his spiritual side and was able through his spirituality to free, him from the, free himself from the grip of matter. So they see spirituality as good and matter as bad. And Jesus is our example spiritually To see how we can live life apart from the travails of this world. Now you see the mystical answer in some of the eastern religions today. The pantheistic religions, Hinduism, Buddhism as well. You'll see touches of that mystical answer that somehow Jesus frees us in the spiritual realm to be the people that we truly need to be spiritually. And then some people will give you the I don't know answer. It's the agnostic answer. If there is a God, can he really be known? Uh, Sure, Jesus is influential, but can we really know that he's the Son of God? I don't know exactly who Jesus is, but he was a guy that lived and taught religious things. Some people will give you the great prophet answer, that Jesus was kind of like Moses or Elijah, that he was like Muhammad. He was just a great prophet You find within the non-Christian religions like Islam, Christian scientists, Jehovah's Witness, that they will see Jesus as a prophet or a pathway. In each of those faiths, it ultimately breaks down to, can you be as good? Can you be well-behaved so that God will love you because you were so well-behaved? And then there is the self-help answer. This creeps into our churches quite a bit. It creeps into Christianity. The idea is that Jesus is someone that helps me live a better life. And so Jesus is kind of like a vitamin pill. You know, if you eat your vitamin pills, you'll grow up to be like Hulk Hogan. You remember that? And so some people think that Jesus is, if you go to church, if you follow Jesus, he'll, he'll help you to have a better life and you to be more successful. I call it self-help with a twist of Jesus. And so you'll find this permeating into churches, there's times that people have gone to church for a long time, and that's their view of Jesus, that he's basically just there to help you, help you have your best life now, help you live a better life. And then there's the secular answer that people give to Jesus, that he was just a man, a religious teacher, who lived, got in trouble with Rome, and died. And then we have Peter's answer. If you look to Luke chapter 9 and verse 20, Jesus says, but you, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said these words God's Messiah. You're God's Messiah. Now, Peter's answer was actually tied to a lot of history, a lot of Old Testament history. You may have heard of this term, the Messiah. The word the Messiah means the anointed one. In fact, whenever you call Jesus, Jesus Christ, You are referring to Him as Jesus, the Anointed One. The Messiah goes all the way back to Genesis. It was this idea that God, in His divine pleasure, would choose or anoint certain people to be a part of His divine plan. And so we see in Genesis that God chose Abraham. Remember Abraham? And God chose him to be a part of His plan. Well, Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, But God chose one of those sons, Isaac, to be the anointed one that would carry the line of Abraham. And then Isaac had many sons as well, but God chose one of those sons, Jacob, to be his anointed one that would become the father of the nation of Israel. And then God chose Moses. Moses would be anointed to bring about the law, to lead the people out of slavery, and Moses would become the first great leader of Israel as the nation was established. Why Moses? Because God anointed and chose Moses to play that role within his story. And then we see King David, The lowly shepherd boy that was chosen by God to be the king of the nation. And God anointed him and placed him on a throne. And David is known as the greatest king that Israel ever had. And we see the nation of Israel itself. Of all the nations on earth, God chose the Jewish people. And from the Jewish people, he would would reveal his scriptures from the Jewish people. uh, He would reveal the Messiah. Jesus would be born of the Jewish people. From the Jewish people, he would reveal the law so that we might see our need of grace. You say, well, why didn't God choose the Amalekites or the Hittites? Because God chose the Jewish people for that role. They were anointed as part of The plan of God and so the Jewish people had this vision that one day there would become the anointed one of all anointed ones this would be the Messiah and he would pour out God's Spirit on everyone but then a problem came Israel turned to their own way and they rebelled against God and so God began allowing them to feel the consequences of their sin And when Jesus was born, all of Israel was under Roman domination. Jesus, to a degree, was born as a slave because he and his people uh, were dominated. They had been conquered by the nation of Israel. And so there began developing a culture within Israel that one day the Messiah would come, and when he came, he would be a trophy Messiah. You say, well, what's the trophy Messiah? The trophy Messiah would be the one that was anointed by God to be the king of Israel. And this was what they envisioned. That this Messiah would once again sit on King David's throne. He would overthrow Rome. He would be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And everybody on earth would be subject to their country. And so they envisioned this day when the Messiah would come, and He would be the trophy Messiah who would establish His kingdom on earth. Now you say, well, it doesn't sound like they were entirely wrong, because, Lash, aren't there a lot of Old Testament verses that speak to the fact that that one day there will be a, a Messiah, and that Jesus will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Yes, you're right. You see, one day Jesus will come again. And when He comes again, He will not come as the baby of Bethlehem, but whenever He comes again, He will come again as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will come again to restore the shalom of creation, and He will reign not just for a time, but He will reign for all eternity. But at Christ's first coming, society needed a Savior. You see, society cannot be healed of its ills until the human soul is healed of its sins. And Jesus didn't come to earth to hand out participation trophies. Jesus came to earth to die. His death frees our lifeless hearts that are caught in the grip of sin To beat eternally with the cadence of the sun. Jesus came; his mission was not just to get you to behave better. Jesus came to free your soul, and so right after he asked Peter, "Who is it that people say that I am? Who do you say that I am?" Right after Peter says, "We believe you are the Messiah," then Jesus reveals to them the kind of Messiah that he is. He's not a trophy Messiah. He's a cross Messiah. Look at verse 21. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and raised the third day. So Jesus unveils the plan. Hey, You guys say that I'm the Messiah. Let me tell you what's going to happen to the Messiah. The Messiah is going to be rejected by the church people. The scribes and the chief priests and the elders, they're going to reject the Messiah. And then he's going to be killed, but death will not be able to contain him because on the third day he will rise again. Jesus foreshadowed the cross to his disciples. You see, the disciples didn't need Jesus to be a trophy Messiah. They needed him to be a suffering Savior who would die on the cross for their sins. Jesus didn't just die for you. He died in your place. The Bible talked about earlier in John chapter 3, it talked about how the one who does not believe in the Son of God, is still under God's wrath. And we don't like to think about God's wrath. But if you think about the cross, God's wrath was poured out on His Son on the cross. The wrath of God intended for sin was poured out on Jesus when He died on the cross for you and for me. And that wrath drove Him into the grave because the wages of sin is death. But because of who Jesus is and His power, He overcomes death. And the call of Jesus is not just for you to behave better. The call of Jesus is for you to believe in Him. Because He then transfers His sonship to you and you become a child of God as well. And you experience the forgiveness that can only come through Christ, We call this the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But I am fearful that there are many who are in the church still who envision the gospel this way, that if I am good enough, if I go to church, if I listen to the right music, if I treat people well, then I will collect spiritual trophies along the way so that whenever I reach the pearly gates and I stand before St. Peter or whoever you imagine to be there, he will look at you and look at your collection of trophies. And if you have enough, he'll say, well, you did well, come on in. And if you don't have enough, he'll say, go try it again. Or he might say, Boy, you really blew it. You're out of here. And I'm fearful that there are a lot of people in our churches, probably even in our own church, That that's how you see the gospel. Can I be good enough to earn God's love? The gospel is not about you being good enough to earn God's love. The gospel is about God extending His love to you while you are yet a sinner so that you can be forgiven of the sins of your past. You might have purpose in your present and hope for your future. You do the right thing because you are loved by God, not in order to be loved by God. I do because I am, not in order to be. But ultimately, all of us have to come down to this question, the Jesus question. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that He's Lord, or do you believe something else about Jesus? If you have any intellectual curiosity whatsoever any intellectual honesty whatsoever you have to come to an answer about Jesus because he is so significant within our society nobody has touched society more somewhere along the way you have to come to conclusion about him and what makes this so challenging is Jesus himself because he said I don't just teach the truth I am the truth he didn't say follow my teachings he said believe in me You won't be able to follow my teachings until you believe in me. And when you believe in me, I'll pour out the Spirit of God on you, and then you can follow my teachings. His words were narrow. They were exclusive. And he made our options of choice very, very narrow as well. But what do you believe? What do you believe about Jesus? C.S. Lewis, the great Christian thinker who wrote Mere Christianity, wrote in that book... I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Now notice where he concludes. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither lunatic nor fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God." You see, C.S. Lewis came to the conclusion that Jesus is either lunatic, liar, or Lord. He was either a crazy man who thought he was God, or he was a liar who deceived a lot of people, or maybe he was just a legend that other people made up, or he's Lord. And it's the teachings of Jesus himself That narrow your options into that, and so the answer question comes to you. What do you believe about Jesus? Who do you believe that he is? Is he a lunatic, a liar, just a legend that was made up by people, or do you believe him to be Lord? Would you be so kind as to bow your heads as we come to a time of commitment? Our heads are bowed at this point and the musicians will come. I want to invite you, if there's never been a time in your life where you've trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord, to make this your moment. I'm not asking you if you've gone to church all your life or if your daddy was a deacon. I'm asking you, has there ever been a time in your life where you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If there hasn't been that moment, let's make this your moment. With your head bowed right now, would you just call out to God? You might say something like this, Heavenly Father, I have done things that are wrong, and I ask for your forgiveness. I'm a sinner. And right now in this church, I'm placing my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm bringing my questions, I'm bringing my past, I'm bringing my guilt. I'm bringing the totality of me to you, God. And I'm trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord, believing that He died on the cross in my place. And I ask that you will come alive in me so that I might come alive in you. And be the person that you've designed me to be. I ask, Lord, that this is my day of salvation. And I place my faith in Christ today. I encourage you to pray that prayer in the name of Jesus. Our heads are still bowed and our eyes are closed. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. But I do want to know if today is your day of salvation. If this is your moment, would you just look up at me and let me make eye contact with you? I won't call you out. I won't embarrass you. But if today is your moment, would you just look up at me and let me make eye contact with you? I'd love to talk to you more. love to baptize you. love to be a pastor to you. To walk the journey with you. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. And we proclaim today that you are Lord of all. And we place our faith not in ourselves, we place our faith in you, and we trust you. Trust you with our doubts, we trust you with our past, we trust you with our lives. Help us, Lord, to be the people that you desire us to be. And thank you for your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.